Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. Hey, it's Glenn Washington from Snap Judgment. And if you love what you're hearing, and I know you love what you're hearing, please consider becoming a KQED member special access to cool events behind the scenes footage and so much more plus you'll sleep better at night knowing you did your part for the community you depend upon it's in you please be in it visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to sign up now that's podcast with an s thanks from kqed From KQED in San Francisco, this is Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Philosophy professor Clancy Martin says, I've lived nearly all my life with two incompatible ideas in my head. I wish I were dead, and I'm glad my suicides failed. In his new book called How Not to Kill Yourself, Martin combines raw personal experiences with an examination of suicide in our culture, sharing what it's like to both want to end his life, yet go on living, to be open about something that's been stigmatized and shamed in hopes that hearing his story will help someone struggling and continue to strengthen his own resolve to live. Clancy Martin joins us after this news. I'm Mina Kim. Welcome to Forum. Many of us have been troubled by suicidal thoughts or touched by someone who attempted or committed suicide, and we've wished we'd known what they were going through. Philosophy professor and essayist Clancy Martin has attempted suicide multiple times, and in his new book titled How Not to Kill Yourself, he takes us into his mind in those moments, offering the chance to understand the complexities and contradictions of his thoughts to feel less alone if we're struggling or worried about someone we know. It's my hope, Martin writes, this frank accounting of a chronically suicidal person may help those who have or have had such a person in their lives to be gentler, both with that person and with themselves. And as we are talking, frankly, about suicide this hour, if you find that you want help or to call or text the National Suicide Prevention Hotline, that number is 988. Clancy Martin joins me now. Welcome to Forum. Thank you so much for having me. I love your show. Oh, thank you. Thank you so much for writing this book, which you call A Portrait of the Suicidal Mind. And it really is, Clancy, a breathtakingly intimate portrait, I'd I'd say, Um, just down to the tug of war going on in your head, sometimes even in desperate moments. I'm wondering if you can share with our listeners some of those arguments, as you've called them, that, that you have and have had with yourself. Yeah, I remember one time when I was um, feeling really, really uh, down. This was in 2009, and I'd recently stopped quitting drinking, and I was on a host of psychiatric medications. I had made a suicide attempt about six months before and spent some time in the psychiatric hospital. And 
we all, my family and I, went down to Mexico for a vacation. But I was just getting worse and worse. And I, in the evenings, I would go down to this restaurant that was down um, the road from where we'd rented a house and pick up dinner for everybody and bring it back. And one night, I just couldn't take it anymore. So I told my wife that I was going to go for a walk. And I went down to the ocean. And I thought, okay, I, this is, I'm going to do it this time. And I undressed, which maybe if I'd kept my clothes on, things would have gone differently. But happily, I undressed and I went swimming out as far as I could. And I was totally exhausted. And then I swam way past the point of exhaustion, thinking, I, I, you know, I, I can't um, go on. And then I tried to drown myself. And... And as I was going down, I was thinking, you know, I, I have to, I was thinking, I'm such a loathsome person. I'm such a loathsome person for even doing this. My family would be so much better off without me. I'm depressed all the time. I'm just weighing them down. In every way, I'm having a negative effect on everyone around me. This was my thinking at the time. And then I'd get down under the water and I'd start to drown and I'd panic and I'd come to the surface again. And I did this several times and then i was like you know what i just i i i can't it's not going to happen i can't make myself do it and uh despite the fact that i had no absolutely no strength left in my muscles i somehow managed to swim back to shore totally discouraged totally defeated and the funny thing about that story is the next day my daughter who was with us and was um 13, I think at that time, said, Dad, I want to go swimming. And it was off that same beach. And we went swimming and she got caught in a riptide and she's not a strong swimmer. And she started getting pulled out to sea and she was panicking. She's freaking out, screaming, crying. I managed to, um, I'm also a weak swimmer, but I managed to pull her back to the shore. And then as I was laying there in the sand next to her and she was crying and we were kind of laughing and crying at the same time. And I thought, my God, Clancy, you never know when they're going to need you. You never know when, no matter how terrible you feel about yourself, no matter how depressed you are, there might be this moment when suddenly your children um, actually need you and you can do something to help them. And that that example, I think, sort of summarizes this this very deeply conflicted way of thinking that as someone who suffers from chronic suicidal ideation can have like you can recognize that the people around you desperately need you but at the same time you can feel like you just can't you can't fight the urge to die any longer yeah that that incredible conflict of it would be better for others if i wasn't here and then and you're like oh my gosh what if i wasn't here for example in the moment of your child i think you've also talked about well, would it be better for others? What kind of suffering would I be putting them through as another area or another contour of that conflict? Um, yeah, there's, there's um, a wonderful observation made by the philosopher Ludwig Wittgenstein, who he was not a religious person, but he said he struggled with suicide all of his life and um, 
Several of his siblings committed suicide, Mm. this despite the fact that they were from one of the wealthiest and most powerful families in Austria. They had everything, and yet um, they were this very suicidal family. And Wittgenstein said, when you kill yourself, you make your despair eternal. He wasn't making a religious observation. He was pointing out that that is the last thing you have to say to life when you take your own life, is that this despair defines my life. And part of that also is that despair is now going to define the lives of the people around you. And when we lose someone, particularly to suicide, anytime there's an unexpected death, I think, but particularly in the case of suicide, um, you leave behind all the people who care about you guilt, self-accusation, all these questions about could they have done something differently than they did, um, a lack of understanding of where you were coming from and why you did it. And so I like this observation that um, you make the despair permanent, you make it eternal. In the conflict as well, that you just described in your story, but also in others throughout the book, you mentioned that within it there is a certain self-cherishing. Um, can you can you talk about what that means and, and where you see that being expressed in the conflict that you've had? Yes, this is such a wonderful question. I think the flip side, I think the self-cherishing and self-loathing are two sides of the same coin. And that, you know, when you are someone like me who's tried suicide many times, you were trying, you were committing suicide because it's a, it's kind of a self-refuting activity. You were trying suicide because you were wanting to escape yourself, but you're sort of, it's a really paradoxical way of thinking because you're thinking, how do I, Clancy, get rid of Clancy? And you want, you want still sort of to be Clancy, but you want to be Clancy without Clancy. <laughs> it just, it just doesn't work. Um, and so I think that when you recognize that um, the flip side, some people say, oh, suicide, the most selfish thing you can do. And I always want to tell them, sure, maybe sometimes suicide is, a tr- it's not always a selfish act, but maybe sometimes it is a very selfish act. Well, there are a lot of selfish things that we do and we shouldn't take it less seriously or deride it in some way just because it's selfish. We do so many selfish things. But I think it's very helpful to recognize that in that desire for self-annihilation, it's coming from this self-cherishing. And once you recognize, huh, those two, those two things are very, very similar, then maybe you can also recognize, at least I'm trying to recognize that I don't have to take myself so seriously. It doesn't have to all be about me. It doesn't have to be about, you know, my territory, what I want, what I need. And then as soon as I recognize that, the kind of the the pressure eases, the blinders uh, get a little wider and the pain lessens. And I realize, okay, I can... I can not take myself so seriously, which helps me not take my pain. My pain becomes a lot more bearable. The experience of feeling grateful that you didn't drown yourself in Mexico, that you were there to save your child, did that stay with you after the, after the fact? Was that sort of the last time? Well, this is really important. The thing is, 
that a friend of mine who's um, made, I think, a few suicide attempts told me once, this is um, one of the world's greatest translators of Sanskrit literature. He told me that when he woke up from his first suicide attempt, he didn't feel any gratitude. He didn't feel any relief. He just felt, as he said, I felt gutted that I was still alive. And a lot of people who make attempts do feel that way. They 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 are suddenly in a hospital room or something and they're just devastated that their attempt has failed yet they may come to a point like i did that next morning where they're like oh i'm so grateful that i failed and i feel that way right now speaking to you i'm so grateful that my suicide attempts have failed but that but well thank you but that gratitude probably isn't going to last but let me tell you something if you are out there listening to this and you suffer from suicidal ideation, just like the gratitude for life isn't going to last, the despair isn't going to last, the ideation isn't going to last. All of these feelings are temporary feelings. So just like you don't run out into the streets shouting and hugging people and saying, I'm so grateful to be alive, you don't have to act on that suicidal thought either. You can recognize it. You can acknowledge it. You can maybe even cherish it a little and say, okay, I'm going to take care of you, but you don't have to act on it. We're talking with Clancy Martin, who survived multiple suicide attempts and writes about it in his new book, How Not to Kill Yourself, A Portrait of the Suicidal Mind. He's a philosophy professor at the University of Missouri in Kansas City, and you, our listeners, are invited to join the conversation. What would you like to ask or tell Clancy Martin about suicide? Does what he's saying resonate with you? You can call 866-733-6786. You can email forum at kqed.org. You can find us on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram at KQED Forum, and we'll have more after the break. Stay with us. I'm Mina Kim. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. 
We're talking this hour with Clancy Martin, who has survived multiple suicide attempts and writes about his mindset in his new book, How Not to Kill Yourself, A Portrait of the Suicidal Mind. He also writes about his time spent in the psychiatric ward, in marriages that ended, and his struggles with alcohol addiction. And you, our listeners, if you'd like to join the conversation, you can by calling 866-733-6786, 866-733-6786, by posting on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram at KQED Forum, or by email emailing forum at kqed.org. And if you or someone you know is feeling suicidal or find you need help during this conversation, just a reminder, the National Suicide Hotline is 988. Again, that's 988. It does, Clancy. It does feel difficult, even dangerous to talk about suicide publicly uh, for fear of its impact on someone who is feeling troubled or, or because as you talk about, we know that after a well-known person dies by suicide, like Robin Williams, for example, and there's a lot of attention paid to it that attempts can rise. How how do you make sense of that and the need to talk about it more openly at the same time? It's a great question, Nina. The thing that we know statistically, there are two effects and they op- they work in opposite ways. There's what's called the Werther effect after Goethe's novel, The Sorrows of Young Werther, and all the copycat suicides that followed after the that novel was published, which ends with the suicide of the protagonist, and the Papageno effect. And the Papageno effect is from Mozart's The Magic Flute, and Papageno is a character who's thinking of committing suicide, of taking his own life, and um, his friends show him reasons to live, and he changes his mind. And now, what are the differences between those effects? How it turns out it works is that if we talk about suicide in a hasty or careless way, if we glamorize a suicide in some way and don't show the larger context of how a person came to a suicidal point in uh, her or his life, then, and especially if that person is popular or influential, then it is likely that um, there will be copycat suicides and the suicide rate will rise. Flip side, Papageno effect, if we try to tell as much of the story as possible, if we show that that person had been battling depression her his entire life, if in the case of Anthony Bourdain, for example, we talk about the fact that he frequently discussed suicide and didn't expect to live beyond a, a certain age and was engaged in all these self-destructive parasuicidal behaviors, then the suicide rate actually goes down and journalists and the media have this wonderful opportunity to save lives, which they might not have recognized before. And the reason for that is there are several reasons for that. One is that it reduces stigma. So people recognize that having these thoughts, having these feelings isn't a shameful thing. They can reach out to others. They can talk. And that's a guaranteed medicine for suicidal ideation and guaranteed to help avert a suicide attempt. Also, it puts people in the mindset to see that, oh, Anthony Bourdain, that could have gone quite differently. He had thinking very similar to my own, and he didn't have to die that way. Um, It's just, it was really unfortunate that he died that way, and we wish he were still alive and that he hadn't made the decision that he did make that night. But we understand that because we're getting the whole story of his thinking. So... This is why we have to talk about suicide and we have to talk about it in a responsible way. And we have to let people know that according to the World Health Organization, as 10% of the world population suffers from chronic suicidal ideation and that you're not alone and that 
um, it's so easy when you're in terrible pain to just send a text to someone and say, hey, uh, how's it going? Or I'm having a rough day. How's your day going? And a little bit of contact back could very well save your life. Hmm. Well, this listener writes, I read that people who try to kill themselves are no less horrified by the thought of dying than others. But living is so painful that they'd rather die than live for another second more. I don't know if this is true and suspect everyone approaches it differently, but I found some understanding in this description and wonder what your thoughts are. I think that this is an important observation that particularly as a person is making an attempt, suddenly, very likely, they are struck by the great terror of death and the body's physical need to survive can overwhelm them and and we're lucky about this and you know David Foster Wallace who unfortunately um, died by suicide wrote about it in this way what David Foster Wallace said is that for suicidal people it's like you're standing in a burning building and of course you're terrified to leap off the ledge, but you're even more terrified of the flames that are behind you. And the flames that are behind you are, of course, the depression or the anxiety or the chronic suicidal ideation, whatever is driving you to the attempt. And I think this is a very helpful metaphor for thinking about the suffering of the suicidal person and for understanding how they got to the place where they made an attempt. Now, I also think that... Um, well, Mahatma Gandhi uh, made a suicide attempt when he was young. And when people came to Gandhi and told him they were thinking of suicide, he always said that he didn't worry too, too much about it. Of course, he tried to help them, but he wasn't so, so worried. And it was precisely because, as he points out, the body is a lot stronger than we think it is, and our instinct for life is a lot stronger than we think it is. So I, I think that this observation is also helpful because... The horror of death can rise up and have salutary power just when we need it most. Hmm. Well, Daniel writes, my girlfriend's mom attempted suicide but was found and hospitalized in a coma. She'd overdosed and they were waiting for the drug to leave her system. She had a do not resuscitate order and my girlfriend let her go. She had made previous attempts at suicide. I question the ethical obligation to honor a do-not-resuscitate order when someone has a death wish. What do you think? This is a profound and challenging question, and it relates to debates that are going on right now about medical assistance in dying. Medical assistance in dying, what we used to call physician-assisted suicide, is when someone... Uh, normally is in terrible physical suffering and often has a terminal disease. And then we go to the doctor to um, end our lives uh, with some, and through some less painful means. Now these laws are being ex expanded to include mental suffering, all kinds of um, psychiatric difficulties that people are having. A law was just passed in Canada, although it won't be implemented for about another year. And um, they're, having these debates about what, how does it change things when the suffering is mental rather than physical. I think that it's very important for us to recognize that mental suffering is every bit as real as physical suffering. It can be even 
more terrifying in some ways than physical suffering and that we should respect people's right to self-determination. Now, when we are passing laws about, say, medical assistance in dying on psychiatric grounds, we should also recognize that giving someone the right to seek assistance in dying doesn't isn't a recommendation that they exercise that right. It's just giving them this opportunity to um, seek help with a uh, an unbearable mental condition they're suffering from. Yeah. So, you know, as with many of our medical rights, we can say it's important to us that this person have this right, yet we're not recommending that they exercise it. There's so much in you being so open about the thoughts and feelings and experiences of people who have struggled or have been near or touched by someone who has struggled that I, I really want to highlight. And you've alluded to this a few times, but one is just how common it is to think about, at some point in our lives, ending it, whether we act on it or not. I often tell my students when we're talking about, I make a point about talking about suicide with my students, in part because um, the rate of suicide among 15 to 24-year-olds, unfortunately, yes. is skyrocketing, especially post-pandemic. We're in a real mental health crisis with our youth right now. And when I talk to my students about it, I often say, you know, none of us would make it to age 18 if we had a little switch on our bellies that could just turn off our lives. And I think that when people are honest, um, I've found very few people in the course of my life who would, who would not admit to, at least during some time of extreme duress, having thought about taking uh, her, his own life. And what I love about talking to my students about it, when we'll have this conversation in the classroom, I'll say, okay, let me tell you a little bit about my own experience so that they know that this is a safe space to be vulnerable, to talk about um, feelings of self-destruction. And then I'll say, you know, how many people uh, are willing to raise their hand and share some story about, you know, suicide or feeling suicidal or suicidal ideation. And in a class that is often has as many as 400 students in it, 90, 95% of the students will raise their hand, mm. hands. And then we'll have this incredibly, you know, vigorous, lively discussion about um, the desire to die and how it can come up and how people handle it and how they get past it. And I think that what I want to say, especially to um, parents who might be listening to this, is it's never really too young to talk to your children about um, suicide, about the having this thought of wanting to die. You're not going to be planting a seed in their heads. The literature is crystal clear on this. You're just going to be giving them the opportunity to talk about and feel safe talking about something that they've already thought. There is a real power to, as you touch on now with knowing that you're not alone. I think you write about how you start to realize that you're not the only person like this in a world of smooth successes and that it helps you understand that there's nothing wrong with you. Why is that such a powerful thought or why was it such a powerful thought for you? I think it's an incredibly powerful thought for me because I 
had lived for years thinking that there really was something wrong with me, that um, I somehow couldn't handle life and everybody else was able to handle life. My wife is a brilliant writer. Her name is Amy Barradale. And I once said to her, you know, I get frustrated by the first noble truth of the Buddha, which is that life is suffering because I feel like life isn't only suffering. It's got lots of happiness in it too. And she said, no, 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 you're, you're misunderstanding the point of the first noble truth that life is suffering. The point is that when you're suffering, it's not because you're doing something wrong. It's not because you're some kind of mess up or that you just can't figure it out. The point is everybody is suffering and they might all pretend that they're not suffering, but, uh, and you might be pretending too that you're not suffering. But the truth of the matter is life is hard for everybody. And once you recognize that, you're like, oh, suddenly the suffering becomes a lot more bearable because you're like, well, yeah, we're all in it together. You know, it's, I think it's one of the reasons that the suicide rate went down during the peak year of COVID. I think it was due for certain segments of the population. It's not true of uh, every segment of the population, but generally speaking, it's true worldwide that the suicide rate went down. There are, there are lots of exceptions. And I think part of the reason for that is just that we were all suffering together and we could recognize that we were all suffering together. And then you feel like, okay, it's not, there's not something specially wrong with me. Uh, we're, we're all in this. Well, let me go to caller Marcus on the line. Marcus in San Francisco, you're on. Hi. Um, I, in early January, I found out I was losing my job and I had to admit to my wife a terrible secret. Um, and I felt like my options were nothing. I felt like I had nothing to live for. I felt like nothing mattered. Um, and I really struggled with that the whole weekend. And it wasn't until I called my brother and my brother really opened my eyes to the options and the value of my life that um, I felt like I had something to live for. Um, it was really this, this, it felt like a tunnel, right? A tunnel where all of my options narrowed down to nothing. There was one option left for me. And by my brother talking to me, I felt like I was coming out of it. Like my options were expanding. There was a life beyond what I had before. Hmm. Marcus, thank you so much for sharing that. And it sounds like Glancy and Martin's case, uh, in Marcus's case, his his brother was such an important person to reach out to in that moment. I, I imagine not everybody necessarily wants to call a helpline, um, and I'm I'm just so glad, Marcus, that you you had your brother. Yeah, um, yeah, the helplines were they were valuable, but it was it was really the more intimate knowledge of my brother that brought me out of it. Marcus, I want to, you know, first of all, say I'm so glad that um, you're here and, um, you know, anytime reach out, I know exactly what it feels like. There's a great um, suicidologist named Edwin Schneidman who revolutionized suicidology in America. And he said, you put it so perfectly the way you, it narrows down to that there's just one option. He said, we, what we need to do is just open the blinders a little bit and we can even remove the blinders ease the pressure lessen the play lessen the pain and open the blinders a little bit and you're absolutely right the best way of kind of opening those blinders so that you can see other options is by reaching out to someone you know um 
like you, I have also reached out to my older brother at times and he's helped me and he's reached out to me at times. He also suffers from suicidal ideation and, and hopefully I've helped him. But if for those people listening to your story who don't have um, a brother they can trust, you know, you'll be surprised. Uh, almost anyone can do the job that Marcus's brother did for him. The, I bet the biggest thing that Marcus's brother did, and you can tell me if I'm wrong, Marcus, but was like, listen to you and listen and continue to listen to what you were saying to him about what got you into this terrible place. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. It's that therapeutic element of feeling seen at all. Um, I, I definitely, I felt like I couldn't share this with my wife. I couldn't share it with anyone. Um, but I knew from childhood that my brother, as hard as he is on me, he would he would listen to me and see me for who I am. Well, we so appreciate you sharing that with us. And if, Clancy Martin, the person you first reach out to isn't there, you say keep trying, right? Just go to the next person and to the next person um, until you find someone who does respond and responds appropriately. Yeah, like Marcus, I, I mean, I strongly recommend 988. I think it's a wonderful resource, but I am I, I am not a person whose first you know, instinct is to go to something like 988. But if you can just even send a text to someone and say, I'm having kind of a bad day, and then they don't reply, send a text to somebody else. I mean, it could be your roofer, you know, that you send a text to um, and say, hey, how's your day going? I'm having kind of a lousy day. And that person could be the one who texts you back and say, oh, I'm sorry to hear that, man. What's going on? And then you get a chance, you know, human beings um, are basically good. And although we're all busy and we sometimes don't take the time to take care of each other, we all actually fundamentally do want to take care of each other and help each other and people will surprise you. And then you can open up and it will, it will ease the pain. We're talking with Clancy Martin. His new book is How Not to Kill Yourself, a portrait of the suicidal mind, taking us into the complexities, contradictions, and the intimate moments that uh, a suicidal mind can express. And you, our listeners, are sharing your experiences, your questions at 866-733-6786, emailing forum at kqed.org. You can post on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram. And we'll have more with you and Clancy Martin after the break. Stay with us. I'm Mina Kim. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. 
Welcome back to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. We're talking with philosophy professor and essayist Clancy Martin, who's written a book that speaks frankly about his multiple suicide attempts for people troubled by suicide, for people who've lost someone or are worried they might, or for people who, who want to help and understand. If you or someone you know is struggling, one possible resource is the National Suicide Prevention Hotline at 988. His book, How Not to Kill Yourself, A Portrait of the Suicidal Mind, can be another one. And you, our listeners, are sharing your thoughts and questions. The listener writes, I have had suicidal thoughts, not often, but occasionally. I'm afraid that if I talked with someone and then went through with the suicide, it would burden them with guilt for not stopping me. What are your thoughts? I think that anyone who is approached by a person who's feeling suicidal, if it's someone who cares for you, is going to feel real grateful that you put that trust in their hands. Now, it, of course, it could be the case that um, you know people are going to have a variety of reactions, and you know they might initially uh, not be as welcoming as we would hope. And in that case, I definitely uh, think, as we were saying before, you should reach out to other people as well. But I definitely do not think if you reach out to someone and then subsequently were to die by an attempt, that person would feel guilty because they did something differently. Or if they did, um, they nevertheless would feel so grateful that you trusted them enough to try reaching out to them because we, we want the people we love to have the confidence in us to be willing to be maximally vulnerable with us. And I think the much more terrifying situation for anyone is if someone were you love were to die by suicide and they never even let you never even let them know that this is the way you were thinking or feeling that's the really scary thing is that and when we read reports of people who but died by suicide reports from their friends about how they felt that that's where you really sense the anguish is that i didn't even know they were going through this or i had a faint idea that they were going through this but they never said anything or there was one aff offhand comment you know we when we're feeling that way we have to try to let ourselves be raw with people just be vulnerable with people trust in the goodness of other people there is sometimes a tendency after suicide to point fingers at those as if to say, how could you have missed this? You should have known the sense of what we could have, have done. A lot of times you get the message that there's really nothing you could have done. And, and I think that that in part is true. But how do we address that tendency sometimes? I think this a lot of this comes from the stigma and the misunderstanding of how suicidal mm. thinking works. There is um, a wonderful psychologist down in Florida named Dr. Thomas Joyner, and Joyner says that um, there is no such thing as uh, a spontaneous suicide. You know, it used to be kind of the dogma that most suicides were these spontaneous acts, and now we recognize that this simply isn't the case, that the vast majority of people who attempt suicide have been fighting with suicidal ideation for a long time, very often for years. I remember 
this one young woman I met in the psychiatric hospital, she had attempted suicide um, many more times than I had. And I looked at this person, and we slowly became friends in the psychiatric hospital, and I could see how perfect she was. And it was so frustrating to me that my inability to, to communicate this to her, how perfect she was. And when we blame the people around a, a suicide, when someone does die, die by suicide, we make this terrible mistake of failing to recognize that the suicidal person is in this ghastly life or death struggle with herself, you know, and probably she's been relying on the people around her for a long time and they have truly been helping her to stay alive. And then at a certain point, it just wasn't enough. And that's when she made her attempt and either, um, either got lucky and lived or got unlucky and died. Let me go to caller Jay in Auburn. Hi, Jay. You're on. Good morning, and thank you for taking my call. My daughter is 25 years old, um, and since early teens, she has struggled with anxiety and, as we understand, per therapist, borderline uh, personality issues. Quite often, uh, she uses suicide threat. Uh, in interaction with me and her mom and has become very challenging. Uh, I'm, I'm just wondering, uh, what is your advice uh, when someone uses suicide threat? Uh, she has not attempted at all uh, yet, but when do we take it seriously and what can we do? Hmm. Thank you. Thank you, Jay. Yeah, thank you so much, Jay, and I'm so sorry for this um, terrible, terrible suffering that you and your wife and your daughter are going through. I have um, five children, and two of my children have also threatened suicide. Uh, and I, as one parent to another, I, you know, I, uh, I want to weep over the pain that I know that you are feeling. What we know from the literature is we have to take every suicide threat seriously, even when they're being used as kind of emotional weapons. Um, the best predictor, I'm sorry to tell you, of, an, of a suicide attempt is a suicide threat. And um, the best predictor of, I'm sorry to say this, uh, you know, of, of an actual death by suicide is someone making an attempt. So what we have to try to do in the case of your daughter is help her change this way of thinking, of going from thinking that suicide is a good thing for her, which is probably what she is thinking and feeling right now, to recognizing that suicide is in fact a, a bad thing for her. And I don't know if you've had a chance to look at um, what's called dialectical behavior therapy, but especially for people in her age group. Uh, it's one of the very most effective methods that we know of for helping people to make that change. I've just described from going from the belief that suicide is a good thing to recognizing that suicide is in fact a bad thing. You're probably dealing with all these different kinds of resources and trying to find the best thing for her. Uh, certainly, um, I hope you can help her to find 
the simple things that may help her deal with her mental suffering a little bit better. You know, um, we all have to find these things, whether it's taking a long walk or changes in our diet, uh, very simple things that, you know, I sometimes call our psychological nutrition that we can do in order to help shift our thinking. But I, I, I hope you're in the hands of also of mental health professionals that you trust. We're in a mental health crisis right now, and there just aren't enough mental health professionals out there. Mm-hmm. Also, certainly, if you want to um, send me an email, please do, and um, I can I can help direct you to some more resources. Yeah, and your book, I should say, does also have an appendix of resources that are really powerful. Jay, thank you for the call. I- I'm reminded of a conversation that you share with a friend of yours, Diane Williams, when you were feeling sorry for yourself, I guess is the way you described it. Um, and you said that she told you something that really helped you. She wrote back immediately saying, never say you're just feeling sorry for yourself. Feel sorry for yourself. Feel more sorry for yourself. Why did that work for you, Clancy? I thought this was one of the most profound pieces of wisdom that I've ever received from anyone. Uh, Diane Williams, for those who don't know her work, is one of America's greatest living short story writers, and she's just brilliant. I'm so lucky to be friends with her. Um, But yes, she said, don't ever apologize for feeling sorry for yourself. Feel sorry for yourself. Feel more sorry for yourself. And the reason this was so important to me and... um, I want to give the same advice to anyone who's listening who sometimes maybe chastises herself or himself for feeling sorry for themselves. Um, You are allowed to feel sorry for yourself. You are allowed to feel you're not okay. You don't have to live with this strict system of judgments and values about your internal feelings. You're allowed to do all these things. It's okay, you know. Let yourself have all the feelings that you have and don't don't chastise yourself for them. Thich Nhat Hanh, the great Buddhist philosopher who we lost not long ago, said, when it comes to these negative feelings, you know, take them in your arms like a baby and care for them and just let that little baby cry, you know? If you're feeling really sorry for yourself, hold yourself in your arms and let yourself cry and that's okay and what you will see if you are willing to do that is that that all the feelings that are boiling up of self-judgment self-accusations recrimination self-loathing all those things that might lead you to really make a bad decision they'll slowly dissipate they'll get much easier and they won't they they're their terrifying faces will suddenly turn into much friendlier faces. I promise it works. Hmm. It is incredible, the connection between self-forgiveness um, and working through these these moments, uh, Clancy Martin. It, it feels like that was really powerful for you. I have to say, I was very nervous about writing this book because, you know, it took me through a lot of the darkest periods in my life and especially hard for me were the periods when I could see that I was really failing um, as a parent. And, you know, that was really hard. And there was a time in about the middle of the book when I went through a period of brief, very intense depression when I thought, okay, maybe I'm not going to be able to write this book. Maybe I have to stop. But Mm -hmm. since it has um, been finished and come out, I've felt this 
enormous relief and this incredible reduction in my amount of suicidal ideation. And I don't want to jinx myself, but it's actually been months now since I've thought about, I still think about suicide every day, but it's been months since I've thought about suicide and thought, no, that seems like a really good idea. Every time I think about it now, I think, no, that that's, that's a bad idea for you. It pops into my head. I watch it for a minute or so, and then it goes away. And I think that has to do with, just as you say, with self-forgiveness and making this kind of frank accounting, as frank as I could make it in my book, and in doing so, being willing to say, oh, yeah, you know what, you're you're kind of a, you maybe you're a little bit of a comical figure, and maybe, yeah, you're a real mess up, you're, you're a basket case, Clancy, but um, that's all right, you know. I was able to forgive myself a little bit, I think, by, by writing down what a basket case I actually am, and it helped. <laughs> We are talking with Clancy Martin, and you are listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Well, Veronique writes, My daughter has depression at 13 and has been hospitalized twice for self-harm and suicidal ideation. She seems attracted only to people going through the same thing, both in person or on the web. Also, she's amazingly good at hiding her feelings, and I have missed two episodes of self-harm, even though I check on her all the time. What can I do? These are some of the toughest cases, and this is the group that I am myself most worried about right now. And I'm also happy to, I was very happy to see that um, the Surgeon General came out with an announcement recently saying that this is going to be a top priority of the American Health Administration. What can this poor mom do? My heart really goes out to you. And you're, you're definitely not alone. Lots and lots of other parents are going through this exact same thing with their um, adolescence right now. It's a, it's a crisis we're in the middle in, of. The first thing I think that you can do is try to find peer, since, especially since you say your, your daughter is um, drawn to people her own age who are feeling this way, find peer-to-peer counseling um, that is available in your area. There's a thing, a wonderful thing called the Green Bandana Project. It's only available on college campuses. I mention it just because they also have other resources for people who aren't on college campuses. But there are there are peer counseling groups out there for people suffering from self-harm and suicidal ideation who are adolescents. And they'll talk to each other and share their stories and it will help them through it. Because if they go to find this kind of um, pl- uh, opportunity to share their stories on the internet, which which they are doing, all too often they wind up in these really terrifying Reddit sites and other worse sites that I don't want to mention that are out there, and they really make the problem a whole lot worse. So what we need to do in cases like your daughter's is find peer-to-peer counseling that um, is given by people very often who have made attempts but now are kind of on the process in the process of recovering from those attempts rather than going deeper and deeper into that world the most helpful people to me in my journey of suicidal ideation and suicidal attempts have been other people who have attempted suicide of all different ages. And I should say that too. She hopefully will be finding people 
of other ages who understands how who understand how she's feeling. Um, mm. Some of the best advice about suicide I got from someone who was in her 70s or 80s when she gave it to me. And some of the best advice I've gotten about suicide was from one of my own students uh, after one of her suicide attempts. So uh, uh, people of other ages, especially those who have made attempts themselves, can help. Yeah. Well, this person writes, if somebody I really care about, a friend or significant other or family member, has expressed suicidal ideations, what is the most impactful thing I can do or say to affirm that they are loved? and appreciated. The most impactful thing you can do is ask them to tell you their feelings. Tell mm -hmm. me more. Basically, tell me more. Yeah. Keep asking questions. The, never try to solve the person's problems for them. That will only make things worse. That will make the person dig in. But if you can keep them talking, if you can ask them questions, if you can um, say, well, that's interesting. Oh, yeah, I totally understand that. Um, tell me a little bit more about that. Also, if you have yourself have gone through similar feelings, share your story with that person and say, you know what? I was once going through this time yeah. and um, this is how I was feeling. Does, is that anything like what you were feeling? And probably the person is going to say, oh, yeah, wow, I had no idea. I remember one time... My mom is not a um, very emotionally open person. She was raised by a very emotionally tight person. And, um, but one time I was in real despair and she came downstairs into the basement where my bedroom was at that time and she rubbed my back and I was crying. I was 15 or 16 and she said, you know, Clance, I would never be, go through being a teenager again. It was the hardest time in my life and I feel so bad that you're going through this right now. And it... I'll always remember that. Yeah. Well, I wish we could have another hour with you, Clancy. I think you're absolutely right that the rates that we're seeing, um, the attempts that we're seeing are very high now, and I think your book could not have come at a better time. Thank you so much for talking with us today. I can't thank you enough for having me, Nina. It's a real honor. The book is How Not to Kill Yourself, A Portrait of the Suicidal Mind by Clancy Martin. Thank you, listeners. I cannot ever thank you enough. This is Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Funds for the production of KQED's Forum are provided by the John S. and James L. Knight Foundation, the Generosity Foundation, the Germanicos Foundation, and the Heising Simons Foundation. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set ten years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. 
Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. All over the country, we need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Sold a Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Sold a Story are available now.